Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. The kind of the big stadiums and some play the kind of intimate venues. I'm more the speaker who does the intimate venues and she does the big stadiums and things like that. But she's going to do uh, amazingly, um, amazingly well next week. And I think God's really um, blessing all that youth culture are doing. Uh, so um, a few weeks ago, I heard um, someone talk about how they used to interview people for work. So she was uh, describing the process, the kind of the question and answer bit. And she, she said that she used to like to throw in what was, she would describe as a curveball question. So I think a question that would put the applicant, put the candidate off guard, and then really not so much about the answer, but more about how that person would handle the kind of the awkwardness and so on. And so, yeah, it would be a pretty standard series of job questions, and then she will just go, What's your favourite film? And I thought for a moment, oh, what would I do in that situation? Um, I've been at the same school for quite a few years, so I haven't had a job interview. And I thought, would the pressure get to me? I start to I'd blurt out Frozen 2 and there'd be no coming back from it. Um, and I just thought about it more and more. And I imagine in that situation that you wouldn't actually talk about your favourite film. You'd probably talk about the best film you've ever seen. Because your favourite film and the best film you've ever seen are two quite different things. So the best film, you know, is probably critically acclaimed, um, great reviews, maybe won a number of awards. If you were talking about it, you might go, oh, the cinematography is amazing, the script writing is brilliant. Your favourite film may not necessarily fulfil that criteria. I suppose the way I think about a favourite film is that it doesn't matter how many times you've seen it, if you're channel hopping and it comes on, you will stop and you will watch it. Um, so I'm going to share what is my favourite film. I'm not going to claim that this is in any way um, high-quality cinema. Uh, but my favourite film, one of my favourite films, would be Back to the Future. Yeah, I am an 80s child. And it's, uh, it's great, centres on... Um, the character that Michael J. Fox plays called Marty McFly. And really, that kind of the focus of the film is he goes back into the past and he changes something, and unwittingly it has dramatic consequences for his life, and it comes about resolving that. And um, obviously the idea of time travel captures the imagination of any child, but I think why I still love that film is for that very idea that one change can have a dramatic impact. And so today we're going to be continuing our series on James, Faith at Works, and really this, the idea around the series is to think about, it's not about changing our theology or any way, but how do we live out our faith in the 21st century? How do we make what the Bible says work in today's context? And so we're going to be thinking about three changes that we can make that will have a dramatic impact on us for the better. And it's really about how we view the future, how we view our lives, and how we view obedience. And really, they're almost belief changes. The Bible talks about renewing your mind. If we were going to use modern jargon, it'd be more maybe changing your mindset. But actually, the shift of that can have a profound um, impact on us. And so I'll be reading from James chapter 4, um, verses 13 to 17. And in the NIV translation, it would give the title, Boasting About Tomorrow. 
Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Father, we just thank you that you do speak to us. We thank you for the time of worship where you did speak clearly. And Lord, we just pray that you continue to speak through this message and that our hearts will be open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, As you get older, I suppose you have to take fewer and fewer exams, fewer and fewer tests. So when I ask this question, we might, some of us might have to be rolling back the years a little bit. But when you have to take a test or an exam of any kind, what would be your approach? Are you one of those blessed people who's really organized, would come up with a revision schedule, break it down, maybe even laminate that revision schedule so it doesn't get damaged, and you'd break down what you have to learn so you're kind of doing it in gradual chunks and building up? Or are you like me and you leave it to last minute and cram? Now, um, because of my work, because of some training I'd have to do, I've been having to think about what kind of makes learning stick, what kind of sticks in our head. And um, I've just been, as I've delved into it, I've been left wondering, how did I ever get through any kind of exam? I'd leave things to the last moment. I remember at university, it would only be whether imminent fear of the exam came that I'd motivate myself to do something. But it wasn't just that I crammed. Even when I finally came to study, the way I did it wasn't great. So I just want you to imagine a situation where we divided the church in half, important exam coming. This half you would read through your notes. So, you know, whatever kind of material you'd have about the subject, you'd just read it through, read it over and over again, and you'd be feeling good about it. You're thinking, oh, I know a lot. This is going well. I'm going to do great. This side, you would read through your notes a little bit, but actually more what you'd do is you'd kind of test yourself. You'd do quizzes. You'd see what you can remember. Try and write down everything you, could, um, you knew about the subject. And you would feel bad. You would feel it was hard. You'd feel like you don't know anything. But actually, when it comes to the test, research shows this side does better. And it really goes to show, actually, that it's saying in education, it's not necessarily how you feel about something is going to be the best indicator of how you perform. And I mention that because with this series on James, I have to be honest, I haven't always felt good It's not just been about preparing the talks. As I've listened to the other messages, it has been challenging. At points, it has been uncomfortable. But you know, I've had faith, and I do believe God has done good in me, and he's done good in the church. So if you were looking forward to maybe a bit more of an easygoing passage, I'm sorry to disappoint. It's a bit hard going again today, but hopefully um, we trust that God will speak through it. So... Yeah, boasting about tomorrow. Some commentators believe in this passage, this letter, James is directly addressing Christians who are wealthy merchants, traders, people who are involved in business. 
Uh, but I do think the point can be applied more broadly. Uh, the things that are mentioned in verse 14, travel, doing business, making a profit, aren't inherently wrong, and it's not, in a sense, wrong pl to plan to do these things. The issue is one of confidence. What do you put your confidence in? Verse 14 says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? It's good to plan, good to steward your resources, but ultimately we need to be humble, have a measured opinion about ourselves and recognize that we are not God. We may plan, look at trends, but we must recognize that only he knows for sure what tomorrow will bring. I kind of think that one of maybe the key lessons that a Christian can learn, grow in, or any church for that matter, is how you deal with uncertainty. And actually, on the surface, it appears that these merchants aren't in any way uncertain. They appear quite confident. They are pretty confident. They know what is going to happen. But, you know, you know, maybe when you go back to school and you think those people who used to boast, used to come across as the most unconfident, arrogant even, normally that betrays an insecurity underneath, an underlying fear. Um, they may be boasting themselves or their kind of plans because they don't feel that they can fully trust in someone or something. So when faced with uncertainty, what do you do? Do you exercise faith or fear? Now, that's the kind of choice where no one really would choose to exercise fear. It's not that you would approach a big life decision and be like, okay, I've got this decision to make. What I really would like is to be overwhelmed by a profound sense of dread and fear and then make a decision on that basis. No one would consciously make that decision. But we know, with fear, it creeps in. It subtly takes hold. And then actually, when you reach the point of a decision, no matter how big or how small, when you make it, you don't even know if you realize if you're making it based on fear. Or it could be that circumstances have worn us down to such an extent we don't have the, um, the energy to fight the fear. When dealing with uncertainty, the best thing to do is to cling on to what is certain. Um, as Christians, we live in that tension of knowing some things. The Bible is quite clear, but there is that uncertainty. And so we kind of need to focus on the Bible on its full, and its promises that it had. And just reminded this morning through worship that... Um, that one from Proverbs where it says, do not lean on your own understanding. You need to trust in God. And actually what I like about that proverb is that it recognizes we do have our own understanding. It recognizes that God does give us gifts. We do have talents, but it says, no, no, you trust in the Lord your God and you rely on him and he will make your paths straight. So we need to shift how we think about the future. Yeah, we can know some things, but ultimately we must get to that place where we know that if we trust in God, he will make our path straight and we can submit to his will. So the second, our lives. To avoid um, trying to bring too much work home, I often get into work quite early. And usually for a, a primary school in London, we have actually quite a lot of space, outdoor space, quite a substantial fields. And um, from the staff room, every now and again, you get this amazing view of the sunrise. And it is incredible. It's like, you know, staff will stop and just stare for a moment. 
But also, this time of year, I hope the picture does it justice, you get this incredible mist that just hovers over the fields. And, you know, the Bible does talk about creation crying out um, about God. And you, people pause. And as you can see, people go out and take photos. But, you know, it quickly goes away. As beautiful and as a precious moment as it is, the mist disappears, the sun fully comes up, we have to start doing some work and getting ready for the kids coming in. And, but we generally don't live our lives as if life is a mist. Probably the opposite is more true. We live our lives as if we're constructing some monument to ourselves, layering the bricks of our achievements. So even though we know we will die, we hope that after we are gone, people will come to this monument and remember, oh, what an amazing person he was. Uh, there's a place near where we live called uh, Beulah Spa, and bizarrely, it's a, it's a site of some historical significance. It used to be a natural spring. And one website says of it that Beulah Spa of the Lawns was once a very famous place indeed. It was visited by the most fashionable people in London's high society, and it claims royal connections. Opened in 1831 by Lady Essex, it was frequented by Kaiser Wilhelm, Charles Dickens, William Makepeace Thackeray, even Queen Victoria and her children, and many, many more. If you were to walk past Beulah Spa today, it would become quite clear to you that royalty is not visiting any time <laughs> soon. And I have to remind myself of Beulah Spa, because I work, in a, like, I work in a suburb, and when I go out to London, I'm like a tourist, actually, because I don't go to central London much. I'm like staring up high. Oh, look at the tall buildings. Doesn't this look amazing and impressive? And I can, I can be impressed by it. all these institutions that wield significant power, wield significant influence. And, you know, my heart can drift a bit. Um, but in those moments, I do remind myself of Beulah Spa, but those things don't last. Not only are our lives a mist, but some things that we put our faith in, put our trust in, they're not permanent. They will not last, their significance will fade, and their influence. This image of a mist is a really interesting one because, you know, if you're caught in a mist, caught in any fog, it makes things unclear. You can't see things clearly. Uh, but actually, when you recognize your life is like a mist, what that does is brings focus. It brings clarity. It helps you recognize what is important. And when we recognize that life is beautiful, it's this amazing, precious thing, um, the question becomes, it's fleeting, so what do we commit to? You commit to what is permanent, what will never fade, what will last into eternity. You commit to God, and you commit to his ways. We sang about it this morning, that song, how God relentlessly pursues us. He, um, he takes the initiative. He created us. He breathed life into us. He first loved us. But we do have to engage in, with the initiative that he takes. We do have to respond to it. Commitment can be hard, though, and we have to recognize that commitment isn't necessarily viewed as a good thing today. The overwhelming message would be, don't commit. Keep your options open. Something better may come along. A few weeks ago, when Phil did his musings, he told the story of a missionary from India who returned and um, came back to stay in the UK for a while. 
and she found the level of choice in the supermarkets overwhelming. And you can get that. When there's too much choice, you end up in a situation where you either don't choose the right thing or you don't choose anything at all because it's too overwhelming. As I was preparing this week, I started to think about, say if you went to a massive supermarket, one with the most amount of choice that you could possibly imagine, and someone told you that in the supermarket was an item that would transform your life. Not just in the here and now, but for the future. And then they said, you've got five minutes to find it. Now, those of us of a certain age may be remembering supermarket sweep and the carnage that could be involved in that. But in that moment, knowing that there was something precious in there, a limited amount of time to find it, you'd want the aisles to be completely empty, the shelves to be completely empty, except for that one thing, so you know you could find it. Choice isn't always good. It's good to remember that in the big schemes of things, scheme of things for Christians, the best has come along already. Your relationship with God may deepen over time. It may, you may become more fruitful, but in a sense, that restored relationship with your heavenly Father, nothing is going to beat it. And recognizing that means that we can commit to him, commit to his ways, and commit to his church. So the section ends with another um, challenging verse. At its heart, it has this interesting contradiction. It's kind of around obedience. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Um, this verse is full of looking at what are often called the sins of omission. Um, the idea that sin, the things we do wrong, shouldn't be just seen as that, the things we do wrong. It should also be seen as the good things that we don't do. Um, the absence of doing the right thing. Um, in some ways, it's helpful to think of that, to reflect on not just what I shouldn't be doing, but what I should be doing. But it's even more helpful to address what is the underlying issue beneath both, and it's one of obedience. Um, sin entered the world through disobedience, and its very nature is rebellion against God. He created us. He, you know, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. When sin entered the world, it was because of a choice to reject his ways. And this verse in James is a helpful reminder that we can reject God by doing things that aren't good, but by their nature are wrong, but also by neglecting to do what is good. Obedience is the easiest thing to do when what God wants and what we want matches. It's easy when it's like that. Where there's an opportunity related to something we're passionate about, say, and you're praying about it, you're reading the Bible, you just have that strong sense of conviction that, yeah, you want to, um, you want to pursue it. You should pursue it. You feel that God, that is what God's saying. And so you do. I would say that is my favorite type of obedience. But it is a bit more of a struggle when I want A, and I'm praying, and I can sense that kind of God wants B, and I can't do both. In those terms, it's a battle. And it's important to recognize that obedience in that sense is a battle. It can be a struggle, but with God's help, it's one that can get easier, and ultimately, it's a battle we can win. So I just briefly want to mention a few key ways to winning this battle. The first is that we must know that God is good. We must know that he is good. He is our good father. Our perception of God, how we view him, will shape the way we relate to him. Uh, 
I think Matt in his talk last week used that image of like a, an ogre with a stick. You know, if you're viewing God that way, trying to beat us into submission, understandably, we will be nervous. We'll be nervous about following him and his ways. Um, if we know that his plans and purposes for us are good, obedience comes more easily to us. And that's why it's so important to stick close to him, stick close to him in prayer, stick close to him reading his words, stick close to him in being part of community, because something will shape your view of God. Something will shape your view of God, your perception of him. And if those things are absent, the prayer, the worship, the reading his word, there will be some unhelpful sources that are shaping it for you, and your view of him will become distorted. On the Beacon Lads um, WhatsApp group this week, there are a number of helpful posts um, related to this. What I generally like to do in my preach prep is go through the group, take other people's spiritual insights, put my own twist on it, and then present it back to you now. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But uh, Nick um, quoted Psalm 1 when he talked about, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. I imagine it, but most of us, would have the desire for that. We would want to be in that place when meditating on his law. That's really talking about his ways, what he wants for our lives, the way to live. We would want that to be a delight. If we persevere um, in the battle with obedience, we can actually get to that place when it becomes a delight, when it becomes a joy. Um, we can shift from the place where maybe for us obedience um, is kind of... Um, rejecting kind of what he wants. No, I'm just not going to do it. Or that place where we do it, but we do it begrudgingly without trusting him. And we can get to it being a delight. But what takes it to get to the stats phase is often discipline. It's the discipline that gets you to delight. Sticking with it even when it can be hard. Reading his word, praying when it doesn't feel like it's flowing. But if you persevere through that, you get through to the place where actually it becomes a delight. But oh, obedience takes humility. Obedience definitely takes humility. Um, the very word can provoke a reaction in it. We can feel, oh, obedient, I'm my own person. I've got my own resources. I've got my own gifts, my talents. Who should I be obedient to? We don't have to think of ourselves as awful people to be obedient or to have too low opinion of ourselves. Really what we need to remember is the created order of things. God created us. We are created. Yeah, we are the pinnacle of creation. We are um, amazing, but we need to submit to him. We must remember he made us. Sometimes, though, the barrier to obedience isn't a negative perception of God, actually. It's more about how we view ourselves. Um, we can find ourselves in a situation where what is preventing us from following God's will for our lives, preventing us from being obedient, isn't that we don't know what to do. We know the good we ought to do, but it's more about we don't believe we have what it takes to do it. It's about us. It's about what we think we are capable of. We know. God's spoken clearly, but we don't think we can carry it out. We think we ultimately, if we do step out, we will fall short. It's really interesting during the time of worship that um, Phil spoke about blessing. I've been reading through the book of Hebrews recently, 
And in the final chapter, it has this amazing blessing. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a blessing. If you know the good you ought to do, but if you're struggling with feeling you don't have what it takes, it really is worth spending some time reflecting on who is it that deserves your obedience. There's some fairly old-fashioned language in those verses, but however, what it's getting at is the one who requires our obedience, demands it, is the one who has all the resources we need. He's the God of peace. He's the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and radically um, took away our guilt, took away our shame. He will equip you. He will equip you, and through Jesus Christ, he will work in you, in us, what is pleasing to him. And it's from that place we step out in faith and get caught up in all the incredible plans he has for us and his church. I wonder if the band could, could come up. And two weeks ago, Feeney brought a powerful word about listening, actually. I think those who here will really remember it um, during, the, during the meeting. And coming from Fumi, she was almost saying, stop praying and listen. And we know that was for Fumi to say that was a really big thing. And I believe that we have been listening. And I also believe that God has been speaking. Last week, Matt's talk touched upon submitting to God. This week, we've had that kind of bit around obedience. And it may be for some of us, for over those weeks, we have come to that place where we know the good we ought to do. We know the good we ought to do. But now it's about the faith. God has spoken, and you know. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to ask if we can stand all together for one moment. And I'm going to say in a moment read that blessing from Hebrews. And I want you to have two things in your head. The first is I want you to have your name in your head. This is a blessing for you. There's a sense where we can engage with this blessing on an individual level. This is a blessing for you. If you know the good you ought to do, but you're struggling with feelings that you don't have, it, have what it takes... This is a blessing for you. But I also want you to have in your head the name of Beacon Church. We can respond individually, but there is a sense where we need to respond corporately. This is a blessing for us. There are things that God has spoken, words God has spoken over this church, things that we are called to ways that we are called to bless the community, bless those in need, bring back those who are far from him into his church. So as I read the blessing, have that in mind as well. It is a blessing for us. Maybe, go, maybe lift your hands for a moment and receive this. It's not from me. It's from God. And then we'll worship. 
Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.